Well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Adam Cross and I'm a licensed marriage family therapist in Southern California. Um, and today I am with uh, Daniel Johnson, LMFT. Um, anything else, any other intros for you, Daniel? Nope. I'm LMFT. I think the first time on this show as licensed. Um, I'm licensed in California and as of Wednesday... I'm licensed in Arizona and Nevada as well. So nice. give me a call. <laughs> that is awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So we, we haven't recorded and I think it was, I think it was about a year ago. Cause I think we recorded on something on Lent maybe. Uh, sure. Yeah. We were talking yeah. about Lent and then you and I exchanged some emails for, for a book project, I think. And mm. I got lazy or distracted and <laughs> here we, here we are. So <laughs> Yeah. And today's a little bit about just kind of catching up and, and talking about things, but, but yeah, you know, that is, that is a still a project in the back of my head is a, a book on scrupulosity. Well, <laughs> okay. Perspective. So part of what I'm thinking, and I found a great book actually, which um, the, the doubting disease by yeah. Chiricoli or some Italian. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Recently. Great book, but the guy was at, I think, Catholic University, and it's this perfect blend of all the elements for, you know, good exposure therapy, OCD work, um, but he acknowledges, you know, kind of the, 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 the stumbling blocks that we as Catholics have with, you know, you don't just want to ignore or distract yourself because you are going to end up having to go to confession at some point. You are going to end up having to go to communion at some point. So it's not just a matter of avoiding your trigger for us. It's yeah. it's also a matter of kind of how you frame that trigger and how you approach that trigger and what maybe what you do in response to that trigger. Um, so his is a great book. And I think, yes, I agree with you. It is very much in the back of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we have the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it seems like in the midst of you know global pandemic that the field of mental health has just surged you know and there hasn't been a lot of time for as many extracurriculars for at least a lot of therapists i talk to so every therapist i talk to has been booked for months and are i mean we refer people out and we help them find resources but i think everyone's got a waiting list at this point um, yeah. at least everyone i've talked to yeah yeah, there's a huge need and there's a little bit less stigma, which is a good thing. You know, I think more and more people are seeking it out. And I think that the telehealth has really opened yeah. up. Um, it, it's removed barriers to receiving treatment um, and to and to giving treatment, frankly, uh, yeah. to to a degree that it's just easier to access us now. And, and so I think a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have come are, are coming, but also the pandemic has worn people down and brought them to a place where they're ready to, well, they need help. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, it's, it's support at your fingertips and this isn't a promo for telehealth, but, <laughs> but yeah, you can talk, you know, and I see clients all the time in their cars, right? They yep. need privacy. I'm just getting off of work, sitting in my car and, and I'm at therapy, <laughs> right? And it works, it, you know, it's private, it's confidential. It's, you know, so it's very accessible. And I think with LA and frankly, even with a, with a place like Arizona, LA is just hard to get places sometimes just with mm -hmm. the traffic, but here there's such a, um, 
like a rural population. I mean, 80% of the population lives here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, um, but it takes an hour and a half to get across this city. Um, and so I keep thinking, like, if I were to get an office, would I get it in Scottsdale? Would I get it in Tempe? Where would I? But no matter what I pick, someone's still going to have an hour commute to get to me. Yeah. So telehealth is a lot easier and, and it makes this a, a lot more accessible for people. And yeah. it lets us work with a broader population. So, yeah, California gas is five bucks. I'm enraged. When I moved here, it was 150, and now it's 350. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. But yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember back when I was in grad school, it was always hovering between like 440 and five bucks. It was always around there. Um, so has it has it peaked over five where you are or yeah i'm exaggerating it's come down okay like 20 cents yeah yeah yeah. yeah. you know i I still prefer in person all the time you know but yeah you kind of have to weigh the 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 cost because telehealth is accessible uh, and, and in a lot of ways it's easier for it's convenient for for both the therapist and the person but sometimes it's not always the best fit, you know, especially when I see couples, I, you know, really I've, I've, I've limited myself to not seeing couples online because I've seen yep. the, the difference, you know, I going into COVID, I was working with a couple, they moved online and then we moved back in person and just seeing that shift from online to in person was like night and day. Um, so that's like kind of a preference I've decided like couples and families online is not a good fit i agree uh i have a one or two couples i've been working with and they have to already really get along to be able to make that work (laughs) to make that work um and i'm already pretty bad at couples uh work to begin (laughs) with uh so i agree and also i would say the other population i have a tough time with online is um younger teenagers you know 13 to 16 or so uh, they one especially during the pandemic they were already having way too much screen time so i was just another set of pixels to them and there's also with that population um i don't know there's something about the the weight and the gravity of an in-person connection Mm -hmm. which gets really diluted online and their their interpersonal connections are already deeply uh, diluted so the the more that population can get in person and i agree with you just for the sake of being able to balance different sides of the conversation couples need to be in person too i know people who do it but they have better skills than i do so yeah (laughs) yeah you know yeah and it's even i mean we're doing it now partially because we're recording but like being able to see yourself all the time, having that mere image, <laughs> I don't think that helps in a lot of in a lot of situations. It's interesting. Um, at first, it was deeply distracting to me. Um, but if you if you if you're listening to this, you can't tell. But if you're watching this, you know I I I have the Italian um, vernacular of speaking with my hands, and so it is nice to be able to kind of see precisely where I am on the screen. So if I'm drawing. Like if I'm talking about scaling or if I'm talking about, you know, the life of like the mean yeah. between the extremes or something like that, you know, it is kind of a, a, an interesting 
asset to have the being able to see myself. But uh, I agree with you. More often than not, it's distracting. Yeah. And um, and I I mean I think the majority of my clients close that part of the screen anyways because you I, I don't know about on Zoom, but at least on the the software I use, you can just get rid of it. Um, yeah. But no, it does add a completely different dynamic to this, to, to be able to watch yourself and to be able to have to split your attention, so to speak, between uh, kind of another person, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right. Like as a presenter, it helps, you know, at times, but it's, yeah, it, 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 you can't help, you can't help not like look at yourself you know while you're talking type of thing and as a presenter like okay am i am i visible you know am i centered here you know these little things but yeah it changes the dynamic and it you know when you're in person you don't think about those things right well and i don't know if you've tried to use um i mean i'm on simple practice and and mm -hmm. if every now and then when it gets too hot here in phoenix and my computer overheats i have to mm -hmm. use my phone to do the appointment and that's yeah. a much narrower field of screen. And yeah. now I think about that when I'm on my big one, I'm like, oh, I better be centered because otherwise all they're going to see is my shoulder. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're not going to see my face. So, yeah. um, so that's an interesting dynamic as well as kind of, you're also having to take into account the, the client's perspective, which you really can't see because yeah. you're seeing how your machine records you, not how their machine presents you. Yeah. So that's a whole nother and, dynamic. <laughs> yeah. And that's the interesting with teens, right? And telehealth, and especially, you know, like you're saying, them being online with school is half them. I don't, I don't even know if I can do it here. I'd have to like <laughs> crouch down, but they will literally show half their face, mm -hmm. right? They will show their eyes or their forehead. And it's, it's so interesting, you know, that, you know, okay, we're talking about being vulnerable. You know, therapy is like one of the most vulnerable places. And these teens, are living in the society where you don't even show your face to people, right? Tell well, us, would, but also with masks, even I, in person. And I would add to that where for them, much more so than I am, they are aware of the liability of showing your face in a digital setting because of the screenshots, posting it to Discord or whatever, or, or yeah. I guess Snapchat. I, I had a fellow who was deep into that gaming culture on discord and any other uh, platforms he was i don't know about paranoid i actually think he was kind of prudently cautious about how much he showed his face precisely mm. because he was like i don't know what you're going to do with my image and i was like well wow. i kind of get that actually That's but <laughs> this is the one place where you, you need to learn how to drop that baby um, yeah so that's that's a whole that's thing point. is is this relationship and something I think about, and I don't know how much other people have given thought to this, but, you know, the metaverse aside, as, <laughs> as VR becomes a thing, I bet our industry becomes one of the first and most aggressive adopters of virtual reality, because how great would it be to be able to meet with a client in a simulated Sigmund Freud's <laughs> office? That would be awesome. Yeah. I would yeah. so love to have Sigmund Freud's digital office as my <laughs> place to meet clients. I think that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Although I think I think later in life, uh, Jung had like a ranch house. And maybe that would be a cool place to meet people too. Like a facsimile of Jung's study would be really cool. Interesting. Um, 
So I, I think about that and I bet our industry, I mean, other than the other than the, the mitigating fact that the majority of our industry is really old, I bet we aggressively adopt this kind of technology and we continue to adopt it perhaps more than most professions, I wonder. Yeah, no, that'll be interesting. I've never tried VR. I'm, um, this, the metaverse sounds terrifying. <laughs> yes, um, I agree. <laughs> but, but yeah. We'll but I have no doubt goes. by, by the end of our careers, <laughs> I bet you and I are using VR more than any other media. I would, yeah. I, I mean, 30 years, I have no doubt. I mean, even the idea of like going for a walk with a client, but in a secure space, uh, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. You know, not, not real, all simulated. Sure. But, um, but an interesting concept. Yeah. It, it's, I would try it. <laughs> I would definitely try it. I mean, I'm not implanting chips into my brain. I'm sorry, Elon, but I'll, yeah. I'll do the VR. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's a whole world that I have no doubt we're going to get to explore before too long. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So, you know, I know we're, we're talking about a wide variety of things, but before we hit record, you mentioned exposures, right? And exposure therapy. Sure. Um, you know, I've talked with some other clinicians on my, my podcast and video series about exposures. You know, some people are like, I love it, you know, especially treating OCD, scrupulosity. Some people are like, it's, it's harsh. Um, yeah. How do you find that balance? Uh, what does that look like in your practice? I mean, I'm not going to practice any sort of exposure therapy that the client isn't already bought into. You know, you, you don't take an ag, um, you don't take someone afraid of heights to the fourth floor of a building and look out unless they've agreed to it, you know. Um, so that would be the first thing is and, and there's some analogy to this in um, some of the, the data around PTSD, you know, the, the people who tend to get PTSD from combat situations will be the people who were least realistic or least prepared for what was coming. They, they weren't able to assent to the fact that I'm going to enter a horrible situation. So you don't want to traumatize and you don't want to reinforce the OCD or, or the through exposure. If you're going to do exposure, there has to be assent and understanding um, for it to be effective in any in any measure um, now and and I haven't heard all your episodes I, I think you've mentioned this before though that uh, some of your guests have mentioned alternatives the only alternative I really have to exposure therapy that I use is so I'd love to hear what other ones have been presented but the the only alternative I really use is um, you know reshaping how you approach your trigger you know a little mindfulness so that you put some distance between yourself and the trigger so that you can choose a different behavior or choose a distraction or use a visualization to let the trigger kind of float by, you know, leaves on a stream kind of a, kind of a thing. Um, so that's the alternative is to, is to give different ways of approaching the trigger yeah. where, where exposure is handy is to reduce the impact of a trigger, not necessarily to, diminish it or to get rid of not to get rid of it but to definitely diminish its power yeah. is is the idea the desensitization um, to precisely the yeah yeah no i think that ex, you know the psychoeducation 
kind of preparation is huge um, with that. And there's, there's, you know, especially like you're saying with the mindfulness part, there's an acceptance of, of what is, you know, and going into it and um, being able to be in the midst of it and accept that that is there, right? I, you know, I, I kind of always use the analogy of sitting at the train station, right? Mm. And you're on the bench and you have, you know, trains of thought pulling in, right? You know, all sorts of different directions. Um, and you know, when practicing the mindfulness aspect, if you jump on every train that pulls into the station, you're never going to go where you're meant to go, right? Or where you want to go. You're just kind of compulsive, you know, compulsively just jumping on trains of thought. And a lot of them will take you to bad places, right? And at the same time, I think especially with exposures or obsessive thoughts or intrusive thoughts, it's, you know, if you're, if a train pulls into the station and parks there and you get up and you're like trying to push that train out of station, this is a terrible train, get this out of here. It's exhausting and it doesn't budge, right? And sometimes it gets even more kind of cemented in, in your mm-hmm. mind. And so the mindfulness approach is like, I'm sitting at the bench and I'm just let, like you said, I'm just letting those trains come in and go, right? Uh, you know, like the leaves, in, you know, in the stream, you know, I'm not going to force them out because <laughs> that's, that's devoting more of my energy to that. Um, but just that acceptance piece, um, you know, but it, you know, I, I think it is interesting, you know, maybe especially in regards to scrupulosity and exposures, because, uh, you know, that's where like secular, secular therapists could very much, uh, I don't know, inch over lines maybe, um, but that can be a scary area too, you know, in, in talking with Catholic, you know, Catholic people who struggle with scrupulosity and it's, you know, well, I am worried that I'm going to sin, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am worried that I'm going to cross that line. And then exposures are kind of pushing that a little bit, right? It's like, well, there's some theology we need to work out here. It's like, no, you're not actually sinning, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, and we're going to actually like encourage you to, think about these areas that are distressing um, without engaging in that sin. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, no, I, I think, and, and the Catholic context provides some unique challenges to scrupulosity and to using exposure therapy as part of scrupulosity, because you don't want to tell them, well, okay, um, I think it'd be really great if you went out and murdered somebody so we could get over this whole sin thing. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a really, or, or any other, you know, more colorful and interesting sins that you could think of. That's not precisely the right way to deal with exposure therapy, uh, or to use exposure therapy for the, for the client, although it fits the definition, I suppose. Um, yeah. so you, with Catholics, yeah, there's the psycho, and you might even call it the, the psycho theological education piece of it. Yeah. Um, where you kind of walk through, okay, is this a sin? What are the criteria? Um, And oftentimes I find you kind of have to, you end up in this, this weird gray space with that conversation where you're, you're really trying to determine how much intention did I have? And that's a tough thing to determine. Um, And usually the, the kind of rule of thumb I use for clients is, um, a, a degree of certitude like if you if you thinking about that event or have it or as you were going through that event if you were certain like oh yeah this is a sin and you did it like if you had certitude about it to me that's a sign of a sinful intention 
But if you are, first of all, if you're scrupulous, you're already hyper vigilant about committing a sin. So, you know, as, as far as being disposed towards a, a particularly sinful act or a sinful intention, perhaps, that's going to be, you, you've already got some points on your side of that conversation. And if you're doubting it and you're just can't remember or you don't recall or you don't feel like it was certain my rule of thumb for the scrupulous is give yourself the benefit of the doubt and move on yeah Um, you know confess it if you want i guess although we got to be careful that that's not a compulsive behavior yeah but theologically sure there's nothing wrong with confessing that it just may or may not have actually been sinful yeah Um, yeah the fear is that you build kind of a habit I'll confess it just in case, because I I have to be careful because I can't really trust the big guy up there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially, but yeah, you know, I think it's interesting, and you know, it's kind of the example of like you said, like I'm afraid I'm going to murder somebody, right? So an exposure might be you know, like, well, what if we thought about him, uh, thought about murdering somebody? And sometimes people can think, but doesn't that mean I'm entertaining? hateful thoughts right and isn't that the same thing right and i think i think you just said it it's i can think about it and i can even observe it that doesn't mean i'm intending to do it right um you know i don't know if this is a good example or not but if you're watching a movie (laughs) right um and there's nudity right that maybe you're not even expecting right and it flashes on a screen you know you can observe it but then there's that time where you get to decide what you do with it, right? Do I kind of like take that and like entertain those thoughts? But being subjected to a thought or thoughts or even observing thoughts isn't the same thing as entertaining or right? engaging in that sin, right? And that's where people can get really caught up too. It's like, this is in my head or I can see something. That doesn't mean I'm, you know, enacting sin, right? No, and this is... You know, it goes back to our Lord's words, right? Um, you know, he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery, right? This this idea yeah. of how much of my internal life, uh, it, well, how much of my internal life is sinful, right? And and you bring up an interesting, you bring up an interesting uh, uh, foil with when you talked about movies or plays, because the whole point of of that kind of thing is to provide a cathartic experience. You know, we, um, I'm thinking of a very secular example. Uh, We watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Macbeth going around killing people, you know, all the time because there's something about his motivation or maybe about his wife's motivation that is deeply attractive and kind of sympathetic. Like, oh, if, if if some divinity told me I could become king of the realm by killing a couple people, <laughs> yeah, okay, sounds like a plan. I, I <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> you know, all right. You know, which knife should I use? Um, you know, I I could see. So there's something cathartic about that, and and I'll give the secular example I was thinking about just because I find it terribly humorous. Um, there's something deeply. Um, uh, appropriate about the way uh, 
See, I can't remember her character name. How interesting. The way uh, um, Uma Thurman goes around killing people and kill Bill, mm. she has exactly the right reason to kill those guys. They, you know, abandoned her, shot her, and raped her. Like, yeah, kill them all and do it in exquisite fashion if, you, if you've got the skill set. Um, so there's something about literature, movies, plays, which is precisely the right time I suppose, to be thinking or to be observing sinful things because there's a kind of cathartic uh, yeah. emotional experience there. And I wonder with, and this is a very undeveloped thought because I'm only thinking of it right now, um, it happens almost invariably that my, my um, clients struggling with scrupulosity have a tremendous problem with uh, watching certain medium. Um, I wonder if they let themselves watch Kill Bill or something. I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe that's the wrong movie. But, you know, they watch something cathartic. They have a cathartic experience around the very thing that they're afraid of. If that wouldn't be therapeutic. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think more about that. It, maybe it would be an, be an exposure for sure. That's so what if I'm you're, saying. If you're watching this, your homework is to watch Kill Bill. Yeah. I, there I, are worse I, things we could tell I you to do. Yeah, I haven't watched Kill Bill either. But um, <laughs> I've, you know... Quentin Tarantino is very hit or miss with me. I, fair enough. I have some, fair enough. I have yeah. some good. Uh, I have some good conversations with friends here. <laughs> really I don't. I don't know that I've because it's two videos. I think I don't know that I've watched the whole thing, but uh, there are definitely some yeah. seeds of it which just because of social media stick in my mind. So yeah. But anyway, well, you know, I think back to I think it was Jason Everett tells this story about how um, you know one part in the history of our church and i don't know the pope but there was a pope who actually had painters go through the sistine chapel and paint little loincloths right because everyone right. was naked and it was and they thought it was scandalous and then when uh, saint john paul ii came in he actually had them uh take off the loincloths right Praise because <laughs> because there was something you know there's something beautiful about you know the human body and again like you're saying it tells a story and stories reveal human nature um you know and i think what's interesting in the in the therapeutic context it's even looking at thoughts that are distressing that we're having right like intrusive thoughts or obsessions if we approach that with observation and a non-judgmental attitude it's going to reveal something to us about ourselves right which is scary because it's more direct than like Kill Bill, right? Um, but but if we look at our own thoughts, it's going to reveal something directly about us. And so people approaching that could have a could have a, more of a fear, right? It's gonna it could elicit shame, could elicit defensiveness. But um, but then there's something really substantial there, right? And so I guess you know maybe the encouragement is is if there are intrusive thoughts, if there are scary obsessions. You know, a lot of people have like harm OCD, right? Is in, in the therapeutic context with, with someone you trust you know, to not be afraid to go there because, mm -hmm. because God wants that, you know, God wants you to unpack that. God wants to bring light into those dark places and help you make sense of those things, right? And I think that's part of the exposure process. I think one of the, I think one of the truly, profound experiences for any person regardless of OCD or not is the awareness that I am capable of doing terrible things mm -hmm. um, and you you actually see a, a 
some of this is present in the story of of um, you know God's conversation with Cain, right? Sin is crouching at your door, um, waiting to be invited in, and um, there there's something very universal about that image that you know at the drop of a hat you know it doesn't take much for me to commit really terrible acts and maybe my free will is holding me back or the circumstances i'm in or but if if for anybody who has worked with dementia patients uh those guys lose their self-control really quick and 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 swear or say things or respond in ways you may have never seen them do before. You never knew it was in them. Um, and so the, the life of virtue or the circumstances were such that they, they never gave in to those thoughts, but they were passing by the door the whole time. And, you know, maybe we can invite them in, maybe we can let them continue on. But um, I think that's an important, and, and I, th I think part of it may not be universal to OCD, but it, it, so it's not every case of OCD, but I think a lot of folks who deal with scrupulosity, I think part of what's going on is this tremendous anxiety that I'm the kind of person capable of any of this, that I actually have the capacity for this. Yeah. And, and maybe kind of going back to the, the PTSD example I gave, you know, like the very naive soldier who didn't realize his buddy's head had the possibility of being blown off or something, you know, yeah. similarly, maybe some people go about the early part of their life not aware that the reason God gives the Ten Commandments is because each one of us is capable of killing someone. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe even desirous, you know, so. And isn't that such a popular theme, right? Looking at like the Holocaust, how mm -hmm. could the Nazis do those things? Right. Sure. And we're, there's whole fields of study that are like looking at propaganda and like, you know, coercion. How do you get someone to do horrific things? And that's not specific to one area or period of time, you know? And, and so there, there is a fear, I think, within all of us. And it's, it's a spiritual, you know, concern and it's a philosophical concern that like we can do great evil, you know, mm -hmm. my mind, my mind kind of goes to that, uh, that quote from the Harry Potter movie. I don't know which one it is, but, you know, talking about Voldemort, like he did great, but terrible things. Right. Um, and we're all capable of that. You know, yes. we're all capable of doing great, but terrible things. And with OCD and scrupulosity, we can really fixate on that. You know, what if, what if, what if um you know uh, but yeah, that's I, that's a running theme in in my conversations with clients is um being terrified at the awareness of personal human capacity just what i'm capable of yeah. and and whether or not i did it is is almost secondary to the fear that i'm the kind of thing capable of hurting other people yeah and i think there's kind of two two things there you know the first one is that we're not called to pursue good or sanctity on our own right mm -hmm. it's like you know we know we need god's grace and you know we we work with god's grace and we co-create with god's grace um so it's not just like hey be good figure it out 
right? And then we're like, oh no, but I have this, you know, tendency to do bad. You know, it's like Jacqueline Hyde. It's like, oh, you know, I might, I might turn into a monster, but um, so we're, we're not alone in that, you know, and it's not something that we have to just kind of muster up the strength to be good on our own. But, and then and the other thing I think, which is kind of, it's hard for a lot of people, but to, to grasp is even if you did terrible things, you're not lost, right? And maybe society doesn't portray that well, especially nowadays cancel culture. You make a, you make a bad joke, you're done, right? But I mean, looking at scripture and looking at you know history and um, you know, I mean, you think about the people who did terrible things and God chose and still worked through. I mean, Moses murdered people right? Like he mm-hmm. killed a guy, he killed an Egyptian. Yeah. yeah. Chapter right. one. Yeah. Yeah. David. Right. He's like, Oh, that, that, that woman is beautiful. I think I'll put her husband on the front line so I can deal with her. Right. You know, like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> talk about adding sin to sin, like, you know, yeah. I've often thought about yeah. that. Like anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then St. Peter, right. Like I'm going to deny Jesus, like as he's being crucified, like I'm, I'm like his best friend, but I'm going to deny God. Right who's dying for me. And then later I'm going to be given, you know, I, I am given the keys, right. And I'm given authority to shepherd the church. Right. And so I think we have to kind of take that into consideration too, that you, you're never that far gone. Right. I mean, even Hitler, right. Like he's like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's the, he's sure. the prototype of the worst person in history. Right. So he was still, you know, capable of receiving God's grace. Now we don't know what that looked like, you know, for him at the end, but, but he's still open to, you know, God's grace and forgiveness. And so there's a, there's a reminder that our sins are never that, never that great or insurmountable for God. No, for, for all the wackiness of what, I guess it was a religion he ultimately was trying to institute. I mean, he was a baptized person capable of receiving God's grace. And yeah, uh, who knows at the end, who knows during his life, what that, what that looked like. Um, no, it's, it's an interesting, and I'm going to speak obviously in, in, in very broad generalities here, but there is this tendency in the church in, in these latter days to sort of minimize the, um, the, the gravity of personal sin, to, to minimize, and this is, again, uh, of course, is one of the great struggles that people with scrupulosity have, is that no one around them seems to take any of this seriously. Um, and, and so part of the work in therapy, I think, is affirming that some of this, yeah, yeah, you're right, some of this is serious, and everyone around you is pretty lax. Um, <laughs> there, there's something to that. So there is this tendency in the in these days to minimize the gravity of sin or even to minimize that things are sins altogether um and this happens you know sexual sins is a big place for this and and some other things so there is that um whereas in the middle ages or the ancient church there was we stereotype them as as seeing everything as sinful or more sinful or or, you know, everything a person did kind of had a degree of sinfulness to it. But I think your point is exactly the antidote. We want a, a serious, profound understanding of human sin, but we also want a serious and profound understanding of human virtue and, and the life of grace that we have access to. Yeah. If the whole point of the life of grace and the whole point of the Christian 
thing is that I am going to literally um, have access to and uh, take on the very life of the divinity himself, and that I am going to not only get to know this divinity, but be able to share his life as though, well, St. Paul's analogies are the best, as though I were grafted onto a bush and become one with that, that creature, so too am I doing with the divinity. If that's the great good I'm having access to, then yeah, that's an antidote to a really profound set of human yeah. sins and human faults and, and all the rest of it. But we've lost the emphasis of both of these. And we've gone for this really, well, let's use St. Paul's word. We've gone for this really lukewarm middle, which doesn't have a whole lot of sins and you can't really do much bad, but you're not getting a whole lot other than maybe a nice little social justice inspired quasi utopia i mean which you know doesn't do me much good because i've only got 40 years left on this planet so i don't really care about your utopia i'd much rather have that <laughs> eternal divinity and being grafted into yeah he who is yeah absolutely and i think it's easy to go in those extremes right it's like this lukewarm sin doesn't exist right you know even from a psychological standpoint everything is just uh product of your you know your how you were brought up right mm -hmm. um or just like everything is a sin and it's like finding that middle ground and you know finding the balance it's like sin is real right sin is when we go against god right I go against what we're made for uh, you know as being in the image of god um, but also being really aware of god's actual plan for us you know you know, God's love for us, which I think is that pursuit of virtue. And I think how I frame it a lot is it's moving from like an attitude of I'm living out of fear. If I don't do this, I'll go to hell. Right? If I don't do this, then I'm sinning. Or if I do do this, I'm sinning versus I'm choosing to live out of a pursuit of holiness, right? I'm choosing to live out of love for God because I know what kind of God he is and I want to be close with him. You know, and that's a, that's a hard balance, right? It is hard because we don't want to sin and there can be fear and there is, there could be attached judgment to that, you know, there, uh, from ourselves and from other people, let alone God. Right. But, but I think it's, it's finding that balance between, you know, I'm trying my best not to sin, but I'm also, I'm, mo I'm more concerned about being close with God because I want to be, you know, because I know him. Right. And that requires, forming ourselves in the faith too, you know, and understanding who God is and then who we are in light of God. And, um, you know, so it's interesting how much of our work, I think as therapists is, uh, is in good theology, you know, that, like you said, the psychotheological education part of it, because if we don't have theology down, um, we get really confused on who we are and our nature. And I think, and, and it's, it's perhaps, well, it, it's perhaps quite providential that you and I, in our in our clinical practices, have begun to work so much with OCD and with scrupulosity, because I think probably there, maybe most of all, is, is where I have found that I have to bring up theology and have to kind of refine those notions and, and give that proper grounding of the human person. And I don't know if maybe OCD is the place where that's kind of most lacking in a secular context. Um, 
I, I can't, I mean, I'd have to think, I'd have to go through the DSM-5, I guess, and, and take a look at everything. But there's something about this set of symptoms, which is scrupulosity, that really necessitates a, a quite nuanced and profound understanding of the human person. Because, not least of all, because you're dealing with really intelligent people, typically. I mean, OC, OCD, I, I think I read somewhere that, you know, they're about half a standard deviation in in IQ over the the norm. So you're already dealing with a very intelligent and, and a group of people who are high in, in that trait openness. So these are people who are able of to put lots of different concepts together and then to apply those concepts to themselves. And so you get you you do get a profound and, and a very intelligent population when you're doing dealing with OCD. And I think if you just try to brush off the, the church's teachings as well, that's just guilt, that's just manipulation from mom and dad, that's just ancient, you know, whatever you need, and just tell them what to do and you don't explain it. It's actually interesting. The Probably the OCD crowd is the crowd I most of all have to explain about the interventions with. You know, the depressed folks tell them to do a gratitude journal. Okay, fine. You know, there, there's not a whole lot of explanation or they're not necessarily seeking yeah. a whole lot of explanation um maybe i'm doing them a disservice i don't know um <laughs> but uh but yeah, no, you're also, right yeah, yeah. They, i mean they yeah. they want to know right they, they yeah. they're the ones very curious about okay are you sure yeah. this is going to work and why is it going to work yeah and there's there's an awareness and it's a hyper awareness right to the church's teachings even if it's an incomplete understanding right so it's like oh no like I am aware and this is freaking me out, <laughs> right? Because I understand, you know, what has been told to me and I'm applying that to my life and they kind of get stuck in that mental loop, right? Of just, I'm checking, I'm obsessing, I'm ruminating because, you know, this is really important. Um, so yeah, you're right. It, it's, there's a lot of that psychoeducation that's necessary. And to their credit, it's because they are very self-aware, which is a good thing. You know, and it's finding that balance uh, within all that. No, so self, uh, I don't know if this is scripture or Plato, but, you know, self-knowledge is the is the beginning of wisdom. I think that's scripture. Anyways, you got to know yourself first. It might be both, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, you, you do have to have a degree of both self-reflectiveness and being able to watch how your thoughts and your emotions interact with your behaviors or motivate your, that's how you grow in virtues. You do have to be aware of those things. The alternative is to join the army and be told what to do, when to do it and how to do it. And you can become mildly virtuous that way, you know, more or less. Um, or a monastery, yeah. I guess would be the Christian alternative. Um, let me ask you this, how much, um, what's the right way to ask this? So how much do you, work with people's um, confessors or spiritual directors? How much are they part of your work around OCD? Yeah, you know, I don't think I've worked directly with spiritual directors or confessors, you know, because there's there's not much they can tell me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that might sound bad, but, um, but, you know, I would be very open to having that conversation if someone was like, hey, I just want you to kind of, you know, get in touch almost as a fellow clinician and, you know, with authorized, you know, um, you know, release of, of being able to talk about what's going on with that. I think that would be really helpful. Um, but I, it doesn't seem like there's much crossover uh, between those two because it, it is a little bit one-sided. 
um, you know, what can't be uh, talked about. But I think that's a great idea. And I do, I do think that these things overlap so much that it is necessary for, uh, for integration, you know, and I'll, I'll give them some homework and, you know, to, to, Hey, take this into spiritual direction, take this into reflection and prayer. Um, you know, that's often, a, a, you know, a homework assignment that I'll give, um, you know, so yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. On. I mean, I find that, um, cause you, we were, we were talking about kind of the, the, the theological education piece. And I find that spiritual direction is another place where that takes place for, yeah. for this population um, and, and also confession. Um, and so what sometimes ends up happening is, um, you know, I as the clinician am, you know, maybe stepping out of my bounds and, and going through or stepping out of my lane and going through, you know, the criteria for a sin according to the church. And then they'll do the same thing with their confessor or spiritual director and get a different conclusion. So I think the ideal thing is we help these clients be able to take disparate information and make a decision. Yeah. yeah. But there is kind of that early stage where it's like, no, let's just get some traction here and get some firm conclusions. And let's just do some stuff. Yeah. And, and so there's, there's every now and then there's this, um, I find the client gets tremendously frustrated at not having a clear answer handed to them. Yeah. And I have experienced that too, where especially, you know, especially if you're talking about like exposures or something, mm -hmm. right. Where client, we could be working on something that is traumatic by nature. It's distressing by nature. Right. Um, and then they go into spiritual direction and the spiritual director is like, well, that just seems like it's triggering you and making it worse. Right. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point, <laughs> but they might not have that psychological understanding, you know, and, and hopefully in the, with the exposures, it's never just to distress someone we're working through it, but from an outside perspective, that could be like concerning, like, what are you doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's not helping your spiritual life. So that, you know, I think depends on the spiritual director and how familiar they are with, you know, OCD or scrupulosity or, how See, I, I wonder about this because, and I, and I, I would love to talk to a historian about this or maybe a liturgist or probably both. Um, because I think, you know, it, it, but in the pre-Vatican II ideal universe, you would have a single confessor and that confessor would actually be responsible for what? Giving you permission to receive communion. Um, so he would he would be the only guy here in your sins, and he would be the one kind of saying, yes, you can receive communion tomorrow or what have you. So an arrangement like that kind of seems ideally suited to deal with some of this because those problems come up all the time. It's like I, I was fine. Life was going good. Then, you know, the homily ended and I asked myself, you know, am I really in the state of grace? Should I really receive? And they haven't done anything. It's just yeah. the, the doubt. And so, you know, some for this population, some clearer instruction around that, like literal. Yeah, go ahead. Receive communion. Yeah, I heard all your sins. You're good to go. Um, would be tremendously helpful. But I wonder if it isn't also you know, you know, 
give a man a fish, he eats for a day. I wonder if it also short circuits and, and denies them the skill set they need to ultimately obtain here of, of how to yeah. properly use self-reflection. Yeah. In my experience, it does, it does provide reassurance, but I think I've seen people do that compulsively. Sure. Right? Okay. I'm not sure I'm going to call the priest. I'm not sure I'm going to call this theologian or this hotline or, you know, I'm going to Google it every time I have a question. And I think you're right. It, you know, short term, it's like, okay, thank you. Like that does give me some peace. Right. If it becomes more than just one or two times, you know, if it becomes frequent, if it's actually, you know, next time it happens, your anxiety even goes up even more. Right. That's the danger. And I think it can keep people from doing the emotional work they need to do. And even the intellectual work they need to do. Like you, you are able to reason this out, right? Mm -hmm. You are able to look at this. This is what the church teaches. This is what a sin is. This is what is mortal versus venial. You know that, right? So spend some time with that, you know, identify the emotions that are coming up if that's in question, right? And then making an informed decision. Um, But yeah, the guidance is good. I think it's just dependent on if they are doing it compulsively, right? Or if it's out of I don't even want to say fear because I mean, you can ask someone a question out of fear. That's okay. Uh, If it becomes habitual, if it becomes a question of self-doubt, I can't figure this out on my own Mm -hmm. and it's ongoing. I think that's where it could be dangerous. Well, and I, I think what would help mitigate against that is um, the fact that this is the only person you're asking. So it's the, the folks who shop around confessors and shop around, you know, go from my opinion to their confessor's opinion, to the spiritual director's opinion, to their teacher's opinion, if they go to Catholic school, uh, to mom and dad's opinion. You know, that's real detrimental to this because that's the compulsive behavior yeah. um, or it can be. But if, you know, there's a doubt and you ask, you're asking one person and that person's also responsible for giving you the sacrament. Yeah. That I, I don't know, but you're right. The part of the problem with OCD is that you, you can become compulsive about almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, what was fine yesterday is suddenly compulsive today. So, yeah. Yeah. so um, no. let, let's switch gears here a little bit. I want to, I want to yeah. hear about you and, and we can continue to solve the problems of the world. Um, yeah. As time goes on. Yeah. What's going on in your practice? I think from last time we talked, you must've been licensed by then, but I, I think with the pandemic, you and I were both struggling with clients. Where are things now? How are things going? And and where are things going? What's what's on your agenda for <laughs> what you want to do next? Yeah. So um, I think trying to remember last time we talked, but, um, you know, have my own private practice. I think it's going on two years now um, in private practice. I created a healing scrupulosity course in the midst of the pandemic. And, you know, it's a seven videos with, uh, worksheets, activities, um, that go along with that. Uh, so exactly what we're talking about, breaking it down from the cognitive behavioral model and also looking at family dynamics and attachments and God images, you know? Um, so that's something I did last summer that's available on my website. Um, you know, and just been busy in, in private practice, you know, and don't just treat scrupulosity, but uh, really, you know, happy to work with a lot of uh, people looking for a Catholic therapist specifically and being able to integrate the faith into the, the healing process. Uh, and 
And, uh, you know, I also work as a director of ministry at my parish, uh, helping my pastor oversee ministries within our our goal and mission of evangelization. So that takes a lot of time too. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, I, I have married and, and I have a two-year-old daughter and a, and a baby on the way next month. So um, that's, you know, definitely, definitely keeps me busy and, but it, it's all good, good things. So what's the future hold more courses or any projects this year? What are you thinking? You know, this year I'm focused on having a baby. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. You know, not, not taking too many uh, new things um, on in the next couple of months to still doing some writing, making new videos, um, you know, thinking about taking on some in, you know, interns in the near future, as I've mentioned, but. Um, well, that's right. You're going to take up uh, uh, supervising and, and helping yeah. new clinicians get started. Yeah. Yeah. But where where are oh. where are people finding you? Are they are you finding yeah. Catholic clinicians or? Yeah, CatholicTherapist.com. I'm on there. You know, my website is AdamCrossMFT.com. Um, has a lot of my articles and my courses is on there. And uh, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, oh, but how about the uh, the interns? How are they finding you? Oh, interns. Um, you know that is really just. I guess same thing. CatholicTherapist.com is a great resource. I have a lot of people reach out to me you know, just thinking about becoming a therapist. And mm -hmm. so had some really good conversations. That's usually how I get to know people. And YouTube, you know, YouTube yep. is uh, talking to people from all over the world, which is amazing. You know, I love it. And people wanting to get into this field. Um, so, you know, like I think next Friday, I have this conversation scheduled with someone from I think Louisiana who wants to be a therapist. So we're going to talk about integrating the Catholic faith. So nice. I love those conversations as well. But yeah, what, what's on your horizon, Daniel? Where can um, um, so I'm resurrecting this podcast, The Color of Thought. Um, so this will obviously appear on your channel on YouTube, and then as with other episodes on my podcast as well. Um, so I'm going to resurrect that and and you know the biggest problem with any sort of social media or or internet based effort is you got to have consistency otherwise you lose the audience and you don't end up helping anybody uh, you end up talking to yourself so what I'm doing now is I'm I'm going to launch a Substack along with this podcast so a place where you can get um, a monthly newsletter and weekly articles. And I, what I'm going to do with the weekly articles, I'm going to touch up some of my old ones. I've got a handful of new ones I've written in the last year. Um, but I'm just going to put some money behind this. I'm going to pay clinicians to write 600 word articles and then a monthly 2000 word article. Um, so if you're a clinician out there and you want to talk about um, you know, the relationship between the Catholic faith and your work. Um, I think my criteria, I'm going to talk to my editor about this, but I think that I'm going to have really low criteria. I'm going to have a word count, 600 words for short articles, 2000 words for long articles. And then I'd like you to quote something from scripture or from a philosopher. And I'd like you to quote something from either a contemporary psychologist or from a journal article. And, and other than that, you've got the other, you know, 575 words to talk about whatever you want. So just to begin to begin to provide a space where clinicians and um, psychologists and philosophers are really 
beginning to integrate contemporary methods with classical psychology and classical theology and really beginning to show how these things work together. Um, so the, the more I could, so that's my plan this year is to really try to build a place online where that conversation is being had and being had consistently. So that, that's the effort this year. And, you know, unlike you, I'm, I'm going to get another dog. So, you know, <laughs> not, not a second child, not even a first child, but it's, it's time for a new dog. So <laughs> awesome. Well, no, that's really exciting to hear about the resources that you're looking to pull together and, and offer people. So that's great. I mean, in the last, I don't even know how long I've been doing this now on and off, but I've made some great, like you say, I've made great relationships with people all over the world. Yeah. And it's really, the Catholic church is in such um, dire need of providing people with resources, both from our tradition but maybe rewording those or recasting those in a way contemporary people can understand. But yeah. contemporary psychology is in desperate need of having all of its insights rooted in something more eternal and more profound and, and well, and uniform. That's the other big problem with the, the psychology industry is there's 240 ways of healing someone. And, you know, I think it's just a change in vocabulary half the time. I don't think it's a change yeah. in method at all. Um, so and we really do need be, to, yeah, it might just be a change in personality. <laughs> that <laughs> Every, too. Everybody's a different flavor, you know, and vocabulary comes with it. But yeah, I, I agree that that shared foundation is it's, it's a uniform vocabulary. It's a, let alone set of beliefs and understanding about the human person. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is a good place to stop, but I'm also thinking that you know, it's amazing what we come up with when we're just like, hey, let's just see what comes up. It is um, amazing. So we should probably continue this <laughs> and do another one soon. Can't um, wait. Yeah. But if you're watching this or listening to this, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for tuning in um, and check out Daniel's content at Color of Thought. Colorofthought.com. There you yeah, go. The podcast. And um, if you're if you're listening to my podcast, um, my YouTube channel is The Catholic Therapist. Um, and vice versa. If you're on my YouTube channel, that's what I'm listed in uh, my podcast and all the places that podcasts can be found. So, <laughs> but thank you again for, for tuning in and we'll see you next time. God Always bless. a pleasure.